direct your attention this morning first to the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter. John chapter 14. We're going to read about four texts here. John 14, beginning at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper or comforter to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The 20th chapter of this same Gospel of John. Jesus, in one of his post-resurrection appearances to the disciples, an intriguing text, only found this particular reference in Gospel of John at this place. John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Then just keep turning to the right, Acts chapter 2. Excuse me, Acts chapter 1 first. You probably went by it, Acts chapter 1. Just before his ascension, Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then chapter 2, at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Almighty God, everlasting Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we come to you now and ask that by your Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, you would cause this, your word, to be effective in our lives. O oh, great Father, Son, and Spirit, may we stop to worship and wonder and rejoice and obey. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Some of you may recall that on Christmas morning, this most recent Christmas, we talked about the incarnation 
of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. This morning we consider the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now while there are a number of errors that come out regarding the nature of God, including serious and soul-destroying errors when it comes to the matter of who Jesus is and the nature of the Son of God, there are at least as many, if not more, errors regarding the Holy Spirit. While the New Testament does tell us of great acts of the Holy Spirit, including the day of Pentecost, about which we just read, the outpouring that shook the place where they were meeting just a little later on, we do not see anything that resembles the practice of many groups today who, rather than being acted upon by the Spirit, seem to work themselves up into some kind of religious ecstasy to in some way cause the Spirit to act or to in some sense, I guess, mimic what the Spirit does. Worse, such excesses have led to many believers actually being afraid of the Holy Spirit. This is to our shame and to our decline. We do not do well if we ignore the third person of the Trinity. No less than John Owen, that majestic, incredibly gifted Puritan, in one of his works, said it this way, a full and clear declaration of, from the Scripture of the nature of the Holy Spirit and His operations may, through the blessing of God, be of use to fortify the minds of those who profess against satanical delusions, counterfeiting His acts and inspiration. The errors about the Spirit dishonor our triune God and injure our spiritual lives. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and is thus co-equal, co-eternal of the same divine essence as the Father and the Son. Now I'm laying my cards on the table at the beginning here so you understand from whence I speak. We'll examine in brief that the Holy Spirit is not merely a force. The Holy Spirit is not some property of God, but rather the Spirit is Himself God. So consider with me, and if some of you are wondering, how are we going to cover this in one sermon? You join me in my own wonderment. First, let us consider the identity of, of the Holy Spirit. And here we begin with this premise, the Holy Spirit is a person. This is the place where the attack most often is made against the Holy Spirit. If you acknowledge the whole, that the Scriptures teach the Holy Spirit as a person and not a force, it's also much easier from that to establish He is also God. This is a place where we make a mistake. Lutheran preacher Kim Riddlebarger said it this way, far too often we hear people speak of the Holy Spirit as an it, not a who. One reason why this is the case is that the nature of the Holy Spirit's work 
is to bring glory to Jesus Christ, not to himself. That's why J.I. Packer calls the Holy Spirit, and I love this phrase, the shy member of the Trinity. The shy member of the Trinity. But this self-effacing role of the Spirit does not mean the Holy Spirit is impersonal and not God. The Spirit possesses the same divine attributes as do the other members of the Trinity. Even as we speak of the Father as God, the Son as God, so too we must speak of the Holy Spirit as God. He is indeed the third person of the Trinity. Personal pronouns used of the Spirit. John 15, 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he, he, not it, he, will bear witness about me. John 16, 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Personal actions are attributed to the Holy Spirit. He speaks. 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. He commands in Acts 13, the beginning of what we would call missionary work. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. He teaches Luke 12 12 the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour the hour of tribulation of persecution what you shall say he intercedes the Spirit helps us in our weakness we don't know how to pray what we ought the Spirit himself intercedes personal titles are ascribed to him he's called helper not help helper or not comfort comforter Personal, uh, this is a little more difficult to think of when I phrase it. Now, when I explain it, it'll be okay. He has passive personal properties. What do I mean by that? Well, listen to this. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? Or in Acts 5, 9, Peter says to Sapphira, how is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? He is spoken of as a person, third person here, someone out in, in a sense different than the ones having the conversation, but the sin was against him. You see, you can't lie to a force. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, Paul will tell us. You can't grieve a force. Hebrews 10, 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and listen to this final phrase, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. You can't outrage a force. The Holy Spirit is person. If you've used the term it, Repent. He. The Holy Spirit is God. Back to Ananias and Sapphira. You have not lied to men, but to God. The Scriptures tell us all these things about the Spirit's deity. The activity of God, the activity of the Holy Spirit are interchangeable. 
Isaiah 6, 9, And he, the Lord from his throne in heaven, said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Now hear the echo of that in Acts 28. And disagreeing among themselves, verse 25, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Paul saw that as the Spirit of God speaking in Isaiah 6. You and I are called the temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Ephesians 2. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit indicates He is God. I tell you, every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. For the Holy Spirit possesses divine attributes. You remember us talking about the attributes of God? Omniscience, omnipresence, eternity. Those are all present in the Spirit. Now, I could read all the text, but I do want to get done this morning, so I'll move along here. The Holy Spirit at work in the virgin birth. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Luke 1.35, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He was at work in the resurrection, Romans 8.11, in the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He was at work in Jesus' miracles. Matthew 12, 28. If it's by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now I know some of you already Now wait a minute. How is it the Holy Spirit works in Jesus when Jesus is the Son of God? How does the whole Trinitarian thing work? Well, this is where you have to keep in mind two natures, one person in the incarnation. Truly God, truly man. In His manhood, the Spirit of God anointed Him, came upon Him, and was at work in Him. Christian baptism declares the Holy Spirit's deity. We baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Calvin put it this way, What else is this than to testify clearly that the Father, Son, and Spirit are one God? Now, the work of the Trinity, as we consider that, the Father's work in salvation is choosing. The Son's work in salvation is purchasing, atoning, substitutionary. The Spirit's work is applying, regenerating, coming to us. In fact, that's why the, the ancients in the Christian faith not only talked about that very difficult concept of the Son being eternally begotten, eternally generated. That was, that, that's deep water, folks. But this is just as deep. The Spirit 
is eternally proceeding, sent. So the text will tell us the Father sends the Spirit and the Son sends the Spirit. Now that's called typically the procession of the Spirit. Please don't, every time I hear the word procession, I think uh, funeral processions, graduation processions, parades. That's not what's spoken of here. It means the Spirit is sent and He comes among His people. Now, the person of the Spirit, we'll turn from that for a moment to consider now the activity of the Spirit. If you look in the Old Testament, you see the work of the Spirit of God. He's involved in creation. Genesis opens, the earth was without form and void, darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering, brooding over the face of the waters. You read a little further in the text and you'll find in the book of Exodus, in the 30, 31st chapter, as the Lord is giving commands and instruction about the building of the mobile chapel called the tabernacle, the mobile temple that they took with them. We are told in Exodus 31.3, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Now listen. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. There was an anointing work of the Spirit of God that gave the creative people who were working on the temple that creativity to be at work. We see it in the enabling office of the, of the prophet. The Spirit comes on those who speak as prophets. In fact, Numbers 11 a young man runs and tells Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth said, My Lord Moses, stop them. They're prophesying. That's your gig. Verse 29, Numbers 11. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Now that working of the Spirit was not only in the matter of the office of prophet, though most often seen there. It was also in enabling leaders in Israel. You see it in Joshua. The Spirit of God is on him. Numbers 27, 18. Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. Put your hand on him. Gideon in the Judges, Judge, Judges 6, 34. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. Samson, same book of Judges, 14th chapter. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him. Saul, in his role as king, was anointed by the Spirit. David, 1 Samuel 16, 13. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. We see the Spirit at work throughout the Old Testament. But we also see the Spirit at work in the New Covenant and His work in our salvation and sanctification. Well, first consider this in His work in the New Covenant. In Jesus' life and ministry, we referenced this before the virgin birth, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
We celebrated Christian baptism today. And what is it that happens when Jesus is baptized? You remember the little argument, the discussion between John the Baptist and Jesus. And finally, whenever John the Baptist capitulates and says, fine, I'll baptize you, here is what happens. And folks, this is a glorious thing that declares the deity, not only of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also of the Spirit, and is profoundly Trinitarian. Who is the one being baptized? Jesus, second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. The heavens opened, the Spirit in the form of a dove descends, and lights upon the Lord Jesus, and the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now those that deny the Trinity have to create something of an oddity at that event. One person taking up three roles, or in essence, it feels like play-acting. He speaks, he descends, and he's incarnate and being baptized. That is not what the Scripture teaches us. Trinity present in Christ's baptism. Further, Jesus will say early in Luke's Gospel, the fourth chapter, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. And this is him quoting from the book of Isaiah, reading from the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord was on him. John 3, 34 for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Now listen to this phrase. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Holy Spirit is poured out in a measureless way on the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He leads Jesus. Matthew 4.1, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Luke 4.14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He vindicates Jesus. Matthew 12, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles. What I'm driving at, my friends, is that Jesus is preeminently the man of the spirit. Yes, united. Second person of the Trinity, humanity. But also the work of the Spirit. Now, if you're swimming just a little bit here, treading water, you're in good shape because this is deep. It is profound. This is the work of the Spirit of God. But that which seems, I think, to be most essential for us as we consider this, or most applicatory, is the work of the Spirit in salvation. We Read in the text of Scripture, in John's Gospel, the third chapter, that we are to be born from above. Jesus has this discussion with Nicodemus. And I, I love these discussions in the Gospel of John and how people misunderstand what Jesus is driving at, right? He talks to the woman at the well about living water, and she defaults to plumbing. Where is this water? How do I get it? He talks to Nicodemus about being born again, and Nicodemus goes to obstetrics and medical miracles. How is that possible? What he tells him is that you must be born, and what's the language he used? You must be given life. The Spirit gives life. The flesh is of no value. 
Now, I know the whole thing about being born again has been both astonishingly publicly talked about in the last 50 years, but it's also been profoundly misunderstood. The former president used the language and it became part of the coinage of communication in America. He talked about being born again. Certain celebrities claimed the same experience. No less than Larry Flint, at that time owner and publisher of Hustler Magazine, claimed to have been born again after he'd visited with the president's faith-healing sister. His experience didn't change his life at all, but he still claimed it was real. Sad fact is, many claim a born-again experience who have absolutely no knowledge of what the term means. Listen to this description. Regeneration is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit who quickens or makes alive the dead in trespasses and sins. And what happens to that? Enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the Word of God and renewing their whole nature so that they love and practice holiness. It is a work of God's free and special grace alone. So, that is the work of the Spirit of God. Now let me make this clear. You must be born again. Well, how am I to be born again? The Spirit of God must work on you. Well, how do I get Him to do that? You don't. He does. Well, how do I know? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you savingly believe, He's been at work on you. Telling somebody how to be born again is like telling somebody how to be born. It doesn't work that way. Right? You all are following me. I know it's, it's been cold and now it's warm and it's February and you're, you're, you're wondering. Let, let me just, how many here chose to be born? Yeah, it's the null set, right? It is the cosmic goose egg. Uh, the Spirit of God must do a work. See, that's why we pray for lost people, isn't it? We pray for God to do what we can't do. And we pray for God to do by His Spirit what we cannot do. This is why your, your, your leadership here, your pastors, we will plead with people to believe. We will call upon them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But I will not cheapen the gospel by somehow making the sinner sovereign. You're not doing the Lord a favor when you get saved. You are a fleeing damnation. You are running as hard and fast as you can from the wrath of God to the glorious grace of God. And that happens by the power of the Spirit of Almighty God. This is His sovereign work. But the Spirit of God not only regenerates, He also indwells. John 7, verse 38 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said, John gives the explanation. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, my friend, when Jesus promises the Spirit, He promises Him as part of the gifts He gives as He is gloriously enthroned at the right hand of the Father in heaven, that at His enthronement, His reign, He then pours out the Spirit on His disciples. And this is one of the unique aspects of being in the New Covenant era. It is not that the Spirit of God comes and goes upon people. It's not that the Spirit of God attends and then is withdrawn. It is that everyone who is truly the child of God is birthed by the Spirit and then indwelt by the Spirit. This is what we mean when we speak of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus sends the Spirit. Now, I'm curious, how many of y'all have ever thought, well, you know, it'd just be so much easier if Jesus were just here. I think every Christian at some point thought that. But the Lord Jesus himself tells you it's better for you that I'm gone. One of the limits of the incarnation is that Jesus could only be geographically one place at a time, right? But when the Spirit is poured out, the Spirit is on all the people of God. This is why there's no longer a temple. We are all temples. It's no longer a matter of geography. It is not that this room is somehow special. It is that each individual who is truly Christian has become the dwelling place of the Almighty God. Uh, some of you say, well, I don't feel all that special. Well, I'm so thankful it doesn't depend on how you and I feel about it. He has promised. He fulfills it. And whether you see the Spirit poured out at Pentecost or the repetition at Samaria or the repetition with Cornelius or the repetition with the Ephesian believers who said, when Paul asked, did you receive the Holy Spirit? They said, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. I, I sometimes think that ought to kind of be the motto for some of our churches. Um, there is an ongoing work of the Spirit in believers. Acts 4.31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, continued to speak the word of God for boldness. Ephesians 5, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he gives a, a, a list of things that show that. And part of that is you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to God, giving thanks always, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Very similar to Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then follows with very much the similar thing. Here's what I'm saying by that, my brothers and sisters. The Spirit of God inspires the Word of God. He takes the Word of God, and when it's put in you, He applies that Word of God to you. And as the Word dwells in you, the Spirit dwells in you, and He is at work within you. That's why you don't get away with sin. That's why you have conviction. The Spirit of God applies that Word of God. 
He teaches. He is inspired. He gives insight. Paul will say it this way, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words taught not by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, friend, this is the nature of Trinitarianism. God always the initiator. The Father choosing before you were born, the Son dying before you were born or knew that you had need, and the Spirit coming to you when you're dead in your sins and awakening you and regenerating you so that you'll believe and be saved. And further, the work of the Spirit is ongoing within you. Now, let me try to give you a little help here, because I think sometimes, well, I don't just think, I know. We're a little dull. I'm sorry, should I start with that premise, maybe? We're a, a, we're, we're a little feeble, weak. We're not real sensitive at times, right? Sometimes we don't, we don't feel like maybe anything's going on. Does that mean because I don't feel like anything's going on that nothing's going on? Do I have to feel the work of the Spirit of God for the Spirit to be at work? I certainly hope not. And I think I can argue from Scripture that's not true. He works in spite of how you and I feel about it. And part of the test of faithfulness, my friends, is will you be faithful even when you're struggling? Will you be faithful when you feel like you're isolated and alone? Will you be faithful when it hurts? That's the work of the Spirit of God. And sometimes the Spirit of God will encourage you in ways that you have no idea are coming. By His work in other people. Just this morning, as I was looking over my notes again, I had a text from somebody that I haven't talked to in months. And he said, Doug, this is weird, but you've been on my mind ever since I got here. He'd gotten to his church early, pastor, to work some more on a sermon. He wasn't satisfied with it, so it's about five in the morning, and he's at the office working. And he said, I cannot get you off my mind. So I want you to know I'm praying for you. Now, I have no idea what's going on, but I want you to know I'm praying for you. And I'll just say, from pastoral perspective, I, I was having some battles myself, some issues, some struggles, discouragement. And it was like early in the morning, Lord taps Doug and said, hey, son, I got this. I'm working when you're resting, and that's okay. And I'm working such a way, I'll even have people pray for you that you haven't thought about in forever. And my dear brothers and sisters, I have seen this the entirety of my life. 
Somebody will say one word, one sentence, something I'll hear, and suddenly the lights come on. It's like, whoa, they don't have any idea. You know, on my side, I'm hearing angels singing. But you see, the Spirit works. And further, that Spirit, not only does He indwell you and act upon you and sanctify you and move you toward holiness, here's the other thing He does. He helps you when you don't know how to pray. I will guarantee you, folks, I think that virtually any Christian here would testify that one of the hardest things to do regularly, consistently, and feel like you're making any progress on it all is praying. Right? We struggle, we strive, we start, we, we sputter, <laughs> we find, try to find words, and then we catch ourselves falling into our holy tones, default language, and then we realize we're playing a game and we don't want to do it. Our heart's aching and we're hurting. We don't want to. Can I let you in a little something? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Oh my goodness, did you hear? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Not our strength, not our might, in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Amen. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Friend, when all you can do, when all that comes out of your prayer life is, ah! The Spirit prays for you. When all you can produce are racking sobs, of discouragement and hurt, He prays for you. You are not alone. He is at work. And He works not by your manipulations, not by your trying to get something to happen. Oh, my friend, you and I, we ought to be faithful to read the Word and to think godly thoughts, and to worship, to do all these things. But please understand, this work of the Spirit of God is not something you and I own and manage. It is His work. Hear this now, finally. It is the chief office of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ. He does many things. But this is what he aims at in all of them, to glorify Christ. Brethren, what the Holy Spirit does must be right for us to imitate. Therefore, let us endeavor to glorify Christ. To what higher ends can we devote ourselves than to something to which God the Holy Spirit devotes himself? Be this then your emotional prayer. Blessed Spirit, help me ever to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And know however poorly you do that, the fact that you do so is evidence of His work. Rejoice, Christian. He's at work.
in just a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Now, uh, guests, I'll give you a little instruction here in a moment, but just say this plainly. If you're a baptized believer in Christ, we welcome you to partake with us. This will take a few more moments for us to do this. But Christian, do you understand that in these common ordinary items here, the Lord is going to be very gracious to you today. Now, He's been gracious already, right? As we have sung, as we've prayed, as we together have read the Word, and as we've heard His Word preached, God has been kind. Would you not say amen to that? He's been good to us. Amen. And now He's about to do so again. And right in the midst of this messy humanity, something that we do commonly, at a minimum, usually three times a day, some of us far more often, food and drink. Now don't get excited, it's common. It's a little bit of cracker. It's a little bit of juice. But what it portrays to us is eternal and powerful. Anchored in a historical act of Christ dying on a cross for sinners. Christian, what we do in these moments is for you. I'm sinful. Yes, you are. Take the bread and the cup. It is for sinners. Now, if you have no intention of repenting, if you have no interest in repentance, please do not touch this. If you're not a Christian, this is not for you. You eat and drink judgment on yourself. But, oh, my friend, if you're here, this is for you. And the Spirit of God can take the simple act of faith in taking a piece of bread and a sip of juice, reminding you for the good of your soul, this displays to me Christ crucified. This is my only hope. May the Lord work among us as we do this. Deacons, if you'll come forward, let's pray as they come forward now. Father, we rejoice to come to this time of the service. We rejoice that you have granted us this great privilege. We have communion, we have fellowship, we sit down to a meal with you because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Lord, let us never fall into the trap of asking for you to show and demonstrate your love to us when you have already demonstrated your love that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Help us look to the cross. By your Spirit, Seal this to us, and may this be the joy of our hearts today that we get to celebrate this together. For this we pray in Christ's name, amen.